Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. And this week, I'm pleased to say we have Keyes Boderblum on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Modernizer of Russia, Andre Vinyus, 1641 to 1716, as some... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. And this week, I'm pleased to say we have Keyes Boderblum on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Modernizer of Russia, Andre Vinyus, 1641 to 1716. As some of you may know, if you listen to this show, I was trained as an early modern Russianist. Uh, That is a person that studies what is called in the trade Muscovy. So I'm always very interested in these books. And so when they come out, I'm, I'm pretty keen to interview their authors. And I've interviewed Keyes before he's been on the show about another book. So when I saw this book come out, I was very excited and, uh, and uh, I got in touch with him immediately so that we could, uh, we could have a little chat about it. And, I, and I, he's very interesting and the book is very interesting and I think you'll enjoy the interview. So Keyes, thanks for being on the show. Uh, you're welcome. I'm. Uh, thanks very much for having me. <laughs> All right. So maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm teaching right now at the University of South Florida. Um, I've been here for about eight years or so. Before that, I was in Canada, where I got my dissertation at McGill University in the 90s. And before that, I, um, I grew up in the Netherlands and then took my first two degrees at the University of Amsterdam. Um, I was trained as a kind of, uh, yeah, I would say, European generalist in some ways in Amsterdam, but became more of a Soviet specialist in um, in Canada at McGill University, although there I worked with um, uh, Philip Longworth, who uh, was an early modern specialist mm-hmm. in Russia himself, um, as well as in Michael Maxwell, who was actually was a specialist of uh, of particular Tudor and Stuart England. So I had a bit of a training at my dissertation phase as well in in Canada in the early modern period, and that explains why at some point in my career, uh, which is now about. I guess more than a decade ago, I switched from the Soviet side to the earlier period, uh, which the early modern period, and then particularly the 17th, 18th centuries, and, and then particularly geographically speaking, I would say Northern Europe, although because I look a lot to the Dutch Republic now, uh, since the Dutch were everywhere, one could argue that it has a little bit to do with world history as well, but these kind of rubrics are fairly mm-hmm. uh, limiting, I find, these days. Uh, it's not quite clear what, you, what one means by it and whether it's really useful to even use them uh, at this point. Mm-hmm. So that, in a nutshell, is, uh, is uh, my background and my training and uh, how uh, I got to what I'm doing now, including uh, how I wrote this book. Yeah, well, you know, uh, we Muscovite historians are glad to have you. You're a very welcome <laughs> addition. <you. Yes. laughs> Thank you. I don't know if it was a smart move in terms of careers and thus and such, but it's definitely more interesting than the Soviet period. 
That's what I well, think at least, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, <laughs> if I have a graduate student, luckily I don't have a graduate student doing early modern Russia, I would say don't do it yeah. um, because <laughs> there's really no work in yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, we you can only do this yeah. once you're entrenched, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this kind of that. switch. Just and, I mean, we, that is you and I, Marshall Bowie, belong to the last um, science of a generation which still got hired because the Cold War, the, the after effect of the Cold War yeah. was echoing still and of course the reality these days mm -hmm. is that every department tries to get rid of its Russianist whether yeah. it's a Soviet or, yeah, right. or an early modernist for that matter yeah. Yeah. well you know there's always job as cab drivers so let's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's of course Putin we always have to hope that's that he does true. something eccentric and people point. get interested in it so tell me again tell me why you wrote this book why about Andre uh, Vinius. I don't well, think he's a well-known figure. Among no, uh, he isn't, obviously. I mean, if anyone would see this in the bookstore, they would, would, would wonder who on earth this is. Um, <laughs> in fact, it, it, it flows forth a little bit from the kind of, um, yeah, you could almost say contextual research I did for the previous book on Jan Strauss, where I encountered him in a variety of accounts regarding Russia in the 17th century. And I realized, here's this Vinius. I also realized there was a father involved, uh, Vinius, who also is called confusingly Andre Vinius in Russian, um, who were fairly prominent players on the Muscovite scene. And then I looked further and further. Uh, in fact, in, in preparing yeah, at first for a conference paper into and my Andre Vinius's life, not the father, but the son, let's say. And I realized, well, a lot has been written about this person, particularly in Russian, to some extent in Dutch, but nobody has really, um, let's say, pulled it together in English to explain who this person is, uh, why he does play such a prominent role and keeps recurring if you read about Russian history between about, let's say, 1660 and, and 1715, 16 or so, um, and I realized there's a bit of a gap here in the historiography um, regarding his life uh, because it's fairly significant, and it is a very interesting kind of angle one can acquire um, discussing him um, about Russian history, about Muscovite history or late Muscovite history, and perhaps uh, the time of Peter the Great by just looking at this person. We know a fair bit about, well, a fair bit, we know something about the Tsars. People have written about the various Tsars of the 17th century, very much, of course, about Peter the Great. Um, but we don't know all that much about people who actually um, worked for them, if you like. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, some work has been done, obviously, you have done some work on, for example, the Muscovite elite and so on, and you hear something here and there about a, a variety of, 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 of leading protagonists, but there isn't so much um, attention paid, partially because it's very hard to find out a lot about them, uh, to, let's say, second-tier, perhaps, bureaucrats and people who were instrumental in what indeed is modernizing Russia, in making Russia a country which first could hold its own with its competitors, uh, who at the time were Sweden and Poland and the Turkish Empire, and then could actually um, gradually overtake from them and become this kind of formidable power, and of course eventually superpower. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, one of the things that occurs to me as somebody who studied the period is the difficulty of writing a biography about anyone. Um, mm -hmm. Longworth, I think, wrote a biography of Alexei Mikhailovich, um, mm -hmm. which Correct. I was amazed by because I was amazed you were able to do it because the documentary base for these people is really quite... Uh, shallow. Um, and I was interested in how you approach this problem. Um, just to put it in context, 
Um, Ned Keenan, for example, who is a, one of the lights of our field, used to say that it was really impossible to write a, a true biography of anyone before, I don't know, he would pick some date like 1750 because there just wasn't enough documentation. You couldn't get access to their inner life. There was just no way to do yeah. it. So maybe you well, can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that, that is, it is a good point. And, of course, it is a bit of a dicey proposition. And as I've said in the book, in the introduction already, um, I note that, you know, it's very hard to get something really about, you know, the personal kind of life and need of Venus himself, because even in his case, we don't have too many so-called ego documents, mm-hmm. as you quite call, uh, quite often call them. Yeah. He hasn't left any memoirs. Um, there aren't too many, let's say, personal statements. But it did turn out that in his case, there is correspondence with Peter the Great, for example, in which you hear his voice. It turns out that he was a book collector, rather rare in Russia, certainly in those days, who collected a lot of books, partially for his work, but also also partially for his own personal pleasure. There were diplomats who met him in a variety of occasions, and and I had kind of personal conversations with him. Um, And um, he he was also involved in... other correspondence and, 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 and writing reports which show a little bit more about him than you would find about the average person. Um, and in that sense, um, although one has to say that the personality of Venus in some ways remains a little bit hidden in the shadows because of the lack of these kind of really personal documents, at the same time you can certainly write a political biography about him and uh, find out something also perhaps about what personally motivated him in doing what he did. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, of course, a, a, as I said, a dicey proposition nonetheless. Uh, one infers quite a bit, I think, at times. Um, I have you know, pre- uh, portrayed him, framed him within this kind of general context of this kind of, of almost, as I say, Dutchified type of personality type, which exists in the <laughs> 17th century, which is someone who is very familiar to us in the Modern or postmodern age, someone who uh, who uh, helps, uh, uh, you know, who knows how to uh, to um, to to get a lot, get ahead in life, relying on his own, let's say, um, on his own uh, devices rather than, um, um, let's say, moving up uh, or, or 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 accepting one's fate in life. Um, so in that sense, there is something about this kind of uh, self-made man about him, which the Dutch seem to have a fair bit of in the 17th century and are a little bit further, let's say, if you want, uh, along with perhaps in the 17th century with this kind of personality type than other countries are. He's in that, that sense too, if I may refer to my previous book, a little bit similar to Jan Stuys again, someone of fairly humble background who makes it big. Vinius was not of the most humble background by any means, but nonetheless, he gets some tools. His father dies when he's still fairly young and he's still a nobody he gets a very good education and he manages with the help of these kind of this kind of preparation actually he manages uh, to become a very high ranking person within the Russian bureaucracy if you like for that matter and that I think is indicative of a certain kind of personality type even though it remains perhaps more of a type then it becomes extremely individualized because again um, you know one lacks these kind of very personal documents so in that sense this by the way is, is not on Usual. That's the case for Russia. I know for the Netherlands as well. There's a historian there called Rudolf Decker, who is 
um, made a study out of uh, you know, looking into manuscripts that exist written for the 17th century, which are diaries and I think memoirs or so on. He found that there were only two people who were not belonging to the upper tier who actually left an actual uh, memoir or di- diary behind, actually. Uh, there was nobody else. Two people out of uh, whatever, you know, in that case, hundreds of thousands of people who could actually write. So there weren't too many of those kind of documents, even in the supposedly, uh, uh, let's say, more literate Dutch Republic compared to Russia, for that matter. Mm-hmm. I think I'm rambling on here a little bit, but no, no, that's just fine. clear what I'm that's trying to say. No, it's very interesting. Maybe you could begin... Uh, Again, by sort of setting the scene for us, uh, we have a lot of background work here to do because I, I don't think our um, audience is really going to be very familiar with 17th century Russia. What was going on in the, the 1630s and 1640s when uh, Vinyus first appears? Well, it, uh, obviously Russia at, in the early part of the 17th century had been devastated by what is a kind of prolonged civil war and foreign occupation, including occupation of Moscow by Poles, actually. It had had a sort of trauma from that, trying to recover and trying to restore itself as a viable state, if you want. So the dynasty, which was um, came to power in 1613, the, the famous Romanov dynasty, actually, uh, began to build up the country again and realize that in order to um, survive as a state, as an independent state, Russia needed to keep up with the Joneses, needed <laughs> to <laughs> be able to fight the Poles on the battlefield on their own terms, technologically fairly advanced for the age, for example. So Russia is trying to rebuild in the 16. 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, and in order to help along for that reason, there's a lot of trade, in relative terms, going on with Western Europe. A lot of that trade uh, is particularly conducted overseas by the Dutch, who sail into the northern port of Archangel or Archangelsk, um, and not only do they trade and trade, let's say, foreign and exotic goods on Russia and uh, a lot of arms, but they also actually some of them become actually involved in, let's say, Russian manufacturing, proto-industry and so on. They set up all kind of different kind of enterprises. They involve themselves in all kind of different projects which help Russia to gain uh, somewhat of a more diversified type of economy, if you like, which supports its military machine, if you want, which supports Russia's military machine, in other words. And um, Vinius... Uh, father trades first in grain from Amsterdam on Archangelsk, it seems, for a while, trades in other things as well, in arms probably, and then in the 1630s suggests to the Tsar that he might be able to uh, set up iron forges as well as uh, a native Russian arms, firearms manufacturing plant south of Moscow in Tula. Mm-hmm the town of Tula. And the Tsar gives him a license for that. He gets into business with some other uh, Dutch entrepreneurs, Vinius' father, that is. Uh, they quarrel. They, uh, they have all kind of litigation going on, which ends up, in fact, in The Hague at the Dutch Estates General. The Tsar takes away the forges for a while, takes away the manufacturing plant. But Vinius' father remains, nevertheless, a very influential figure who, on the eve of uh, an enormous war which breaks out in 1654 with Poland, goes on behalf of the Tsar to Amsterdam and buys um, literally shiploads of muskets and other guns for the Tsar to fight his war. He is celebrated by Dutch painters at the time as well as by the most 
famous Dutch poet. And this is a time in the 1650s when the father has already a few sons, uh, one of whom is the protagonist of my book, André, who grows up in a household. His mother was Dutch indeed, but dies fairly young. Uh, his second uh, stepmother is a, um, is a German woman uh, in a fairly, what for the time was a fairly enlightened household, if you want, if you want to use that term, it's a bit of an anachronism perhaps, but he's educated in a way that he, um, uh, which is very rare for people who spent most of their time in Russia at the time, in the sense that he learns languages, but he also learns about things such as mathematics and, um, and, and, and things about science, for example. And even in Western Europe, science is perhaps a little bit in its infancy. This is the time which people have called the scientific revolution associated with people like Newton and so on. And this is also just taking off in Western Europe. So he gets a kind of uniquely versatile type of education, um, which eventually then, when um, the Tsar, who goes to war in 1654 with Poland, with the help of those Dutch arms, when the Tsar is... Um, is uh, is, is, is somewhat older, recognizes and decides to hire André Vinius Jr., the son, into the Tsar's bureaucracy, into the kind of uh, crucial foreign office where André is translator, interpreter at first, um, which sounds like a kind of a humble position. It turns out to be rather important because what he does in the 1660s, in addition to indeed just translate, let's say, straightforward, regular, regular diplomatic acts and so on, he also translates newspapers because half of the newspapers arriving in Moscow are in Dutch and come from the Netherlands because most of the important news which is gathered in Europe uh, ends up somewhere in Dutch newspapers in particular because the country is so well connected through its trade and is so well connected, therefore, uh, in, in to gather information. And that information is, to some extent, strategic. It helps the Tsar to understand the world, uh, the context of the world, particularly the European world, in which he tries to position himself much better than previously. And therefore, Vinius likely is in the 1660s on a weekly basis meets with the Tsar just for that reason alone. He's also already noticed by a Dutch diplomatic um, um, mission which uh, ends up in, in Russia in 1664-1665 because he is the translator. He's assigned as the translator by the Tsar uh, who translates the discussion uh, from Dutch into uh, into Russian, actually, for the Tsar, and the other way around on behalf of the Tsar as well. So at that point, he's already seen as a fairly crucial figure. Um, and um, again, he, um, he to some extent, uh, is then uh, um, uh, indeed given the task to figure out and liaise with the Dutch expatriate community in Moscow and elsewhere in Russia to, uh, to, um, to mine them, if you like, literally. Like his father had mined the, um, for iron ore in near Tula. He is mining the Dutch for information and uh, is fairly close contact, it seems, with the Dutch in a variety of ways, through correspondence, through personal meetings with the Dutch as well, and it fairly quickly already translates into venues coming up with 
with with all kinds of different projects, such as the uh, introduction of a new kind of, um, uh, let's say, penal system in Russia, in which convicts, rather than um, lingering in jails and otherwise, perhaps can actually um, row on ships uh, as galley slaves, row with oars, because that seems to be something... um, which is much more efficient and actually, therefore, is not a waste of money uh, for the Russian state. You put them to work. And this particular kind of proposal um, uh, is given the name of Katurga, actually hard labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes later in, 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 Russian, uh, in the Russian language, in fact, becomes notorious. Um, but this is the kind of idea which starts with Vinius. And Vinius is someone who throughout his life actually tries to advocate or try to end what he perceives as of idleness uh, of um, of the underclass or the poor people, whether convicts or poor people or orphans and so on. He tries to put orphans in orphanages where they can work. He tries to put other poor people in in poor houses where they can work and work for the state. And in that, he actually follows the model of the Dutch who did the same thing at the time in the Dutch Republic. So here, uh, a little bit about the context and other, a little bit where, you know, Vinius moves in as um, as a man in his early 20s in the, in the 1660s, if you like. Mm-hmm. So he seems to be different than other foreigners in Muscovite service in the sense that he has the trust of the political yeah. elite. He, 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 he is, and that's partially because uh, he is... He seems to have been accepted, and this is a little bit goes perhaps against uh, sometimes the um, the kind of conventional wisdom about Russia. Vinius seems to be accepted as a Russian by and large, and there is reason for that, good reason for that. There's a petition from his father to the Tsar, Alexis, in 1648, I believe it is, in which he asks the Tsar to, uh, if it is, um, if he can be permitted to become what seems to be a Russian citizen, <laughs> which is a strange type of petition because I, I, for me it's been unique when I, uh, when I looked at it. It was found by the Russian researcher Orlinko, actually, um, in that he says, well, I've lived and worked here now for almost 20 years, much more for you than I have for my native country, and I don't feel any loyalty anymore to the estates general of the Netherlands, there's not, there's not a word, the Dutch government, I feel much more loyal to you and I humbly request you to become your um, subject, if you like, your, you know, which is unusual. It is unusual because normally what people do in order to pass as Russian is convert to orthodoxy. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the common way. And in the, in the case of Vinius, this is Vinius the father, this is not the case. It seems that Tsar accepts this. Vinius um, gets, which is not unusual for foreigners, but gets the title of Ghost, which is, you know, upper mm-hmm. merchant, if you like. In Vinius's case, though, it might mean more like a Russian rather than a non-Russian Ghost almost. What happens then in 1655, Vinius' father with his family converts to orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Seven years after he has become a Russian subject. He only converts to orthodoxy, probably because he's in danger of losing his residence in Moscow because foreigners have been banished since 1654 from Moscow, from residing in Moscow. Uh, The 
person responsible for that was the patriarch Nikon, actually, who is the one who baptizes both um, Finu's father and Finu's son, actually, the patriarch of the Russian church, which shows how important they were for the Tsar, actually, at the time. Um, obviously, the son, Vinus grows up much of his life in Russia. It seems he's sometimes perhaps back in the Netherlands, but he's most of the time in Russia. So his Russian is fluent, and as far as his writings uh, survive, we can say, yes, he makes absolutely no mistake in terms of translating, for example, newspapers and so on. So he is, you know, he's a native speaker, basically. So that is one reason why he can pass, probably, as Russian. And, of course, he's orthodox, but at the same time, it is very clear as well that in many ways he's as fluent in Dutch as he's in Russian. So in that sense, he somehow or other finds himself positioned on the fence in between, or straddling the fence, perhaps, uh, between those two cultures. He's acceptable to the Russians, uh, whereas the Dutch too normally accept him as one of them, him as one of them, uh, if necessary, it seems. Uh, mm-hmm. Although the Dutch are much less uh, restrictive about who is Dutch and who is not Dutch in the age, actually, for that matter, it's not as if we're living in the modern age in this case, of course. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, he uh, he he passes as Russian. He's accepted as Russian. He gains the trust of the elite as well. Although one finds, of course, among the elite uh, more xenophobic characters who are not so keen on these kinds of types. Um, it has to be remembered, though, that Vinius, perhaps as a Western European, is fairly unique in um, crossing that bridge. There were, though, foreigners from other heritage, and that gets back to the point I tried to make earlier, uh, who were accepted into, let's say, the highest circles in Russia without too much problem as long as they converted. And I'm thinking then uh, of people such as um, uh, Cherkes or Circassians, for example, mm-hmm. people who um, were sometimes Muslims, converted to the Orthodoxy, Russified their name, so it became uh, uh, Bulat, became Bulatov or something like that, and then they passed as Russian, they, the Russians had always been fairly open to that kind of, um, of let's say, assimilation um, or acculturation, if you like, um, going back to a long, long time. And Russia, of course, was, ha- uh, was interacting very heavily, I guess, with Muslim cultures, for example, cultures uh, bordering its lands on the south and east, if you like, for that matter. So he's a little bit different in the sense that we have a Western European who can pass so easily. There were, though, people from other cultures who could do that too without too much trouble for a long uh, time as well. So it belies a little bit this, this very strict idea of, of Russian xenophobia. I mean, the xenophobia is select, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yes, they were not too keen on non-Orthodox, etc. But if it suited them, then suddenly they embraced some of these people. Certainly they do so in the case of Venus. Nonetheless, there were some xenophobic types, I said. There were certainly some types who were suspicious of him uh, on occasion, it seems. And he had to tread carefully. There were moments in the later 17th century when there were palace revolutions, if you like, um, in which he certainly was in danger to be identified with innovators, uh, westernizers, if you like, uh, for that matter. in 1676, after Alexis suddenly died and was succeeded by a minor son, there was a moment because one of the closest collaborators of Vinius, Matveev, was banished, and Matveev was particularly seen as a westernizer. But 
the kind of factional struggle between Matveyev and his adversaries had less to do probably with westernization as just with personal politics and the fact that Matveyev himself is an upstart. Later on in 1682 and 1689, again Venus is exposed, perhaps in a more dangerous situation in 1682, because there's a rising of the elite core of the Tsar, which has become obsolete a little bit, the musketeers, the uh, so-called um, Streltsy at the time, and the Streltsy do not like any kind of Western type of innovation or foreign innovation, and do actually seek out a lot of the people Venus has been previously associated with. The Dolgoruki family, for example, is torn to pieces by the crowd. Matveyev, who by accident has just returned, or it seems, to Moscow, unfortunately, is also found and indeed murdered. There's a few others associated with Venus in a very bloody scene in May 16. 82 in Moscow, and Venus narrowly seems to escape one way or other. I'm not quite sure how he manages, possibly because he was not recognized as being very important yet. In 1689, then, um, he again is, um, is actually in trouble because he has, in order perhaps to further his career, identified, identified very strongly with the then regent of Russia, Sofia, helping her along with a sort of propaganda campaign through which she might be recognized as the preeminent member of the ruling family rather than her brother and half-brother, Ivan and Peter, the later Peter the Great, uh, which fails. But Venus has been instrumental in getting um, pamphlets copied in and made and copied in Amsterdam to distribute among European courts, which shows Sophia as Russia's ruler and so on. Um, Sophia overplays her hand. Uh, Peter, not as the later Peter the Great, um, in the situation, uh, faces her down literally, but Venus is on the wrong side. And um, again, he might be in trouble. Uh, it's not quite clear how he survives. He survives together with his brother-in-law, who is the head of the foreign office, Ukrainsev, who at the crucial moment switches sides, it seems. And he comes up fairly lightly. He's not being punished for uh, being in the wrong faction at the time. Um, there, perhaps, there was not so much xenophobia, although Peter, when he took over in 1689, does identify more with the conservative, anti-Western crowd, stranger that might seem, than with the more Western crowd with which um, Sophia at the time was identified. But in any event, he does survive that one. But he had to be very, very careful at times, because although, yes, he has more or less become accepted, there is still sometimes this smell of not being quite a Russian among, uh, uh, on him, it seems. There's, in the end, what I sometimes suspect if I read through the documents, and that's what I argue in the book. Mm -hmm, I see. So the title of the book is Modernizer of Russia. One of the things that I think we, our generation of historians, can take credit for, at least partial credit, is uh, proposing and I think uh, at least maybe proving that uh, the reign of Alexei Mikhailovich was a kind of precursor to the reign of Peter the Great, that is Tsar mm -hmm. Alexei. Um, what role did uh, Vinyus play in uh, Alexei's um, reforms? Uh, well, uh, he, again, first of all, he's a conduit of information deriving from the West through his newspaper translation and so on. Um, he also liaises and facilitates um, sometimes the, um, the, the contact with Westerners. Um, what he, um, what he, for example, does is in, um, in 1667, 1668, uh, Alexis um, suddenly has decided that he needs a navy. 
And Russia, <laughs> as we know, uh, never had a navy. Now, in fact, even Alexis's father already had a ship built for him to sail, in fact, also the Caspian Sea, as Alexis want, wants. And Alexis, therefore, with the help of uh, a fairly influential Dutchman by the name of Van Sweden, who also very likely had been a kind of patron of Venus earlier, too, organizes, um, Alexis organizes the hiring of a number of Dutch shipwrights and sailors to build a ship near Moscow, uh, raft it, pull it down the Volga River, and have it police the Caspian Sea to help the Russian um, trade on Iran, on Persia, in silk, in raw silk particularly. Uh, silk was normally arrived in Western Europe by way of the Ottoman Empire, by way of caravans. The idea was we reroute this particular um, trade and Russia will profit from it. Mm-hmm. Venus is actually very closely involved with this group, with the, the ship's captain, David Butler, David Butler um, in um, coming up with, um, with a variety of uh, projects which would build on this particular early navy, um, including, for example, the, the uh, um, building of, of galley ships on the Caspian, which are probably a better idea for the Caspian Sea because it's a very shallow sea, by the way, whereas the sail ship the Dutch built is not particularly seaworthy there, it seems. Um, and he suggests he also translates and helps the Dutch captain actually to translate the first ship's regulations for the Russian Navy, uh, ship regulation which Peter the Great later looks at for his own Navy uh, when he sets up his, uh, his, his, his ship's uh, regulation for his own Navy around 1720 or so, which is, by the way, half in Dutch. One page is in Dutch, the other page is actually in Russian, mm. which is kind of interesting as well. So he, he, he's involved in the project of, of, of setting up a Russian navy, which is, uh, fails in the end because of other circumstances, which I write about in my first book, or my first book on this, uh, this type of, uh, this period, actually, on, on the book on Jan Struis. I won't expand on that. He, um, in addition to that, he tries to um, in the 1670s, for example, he also, while he's working for the Foreign Office, he gets leave to prospect for ore because growing up with his father and educated by his father, he clearly knows something about mining and prospecting. So at some point in the 1670s, when Alexis is still alive, he is dispatched, or he, on his own initiative, he goes to um, the area in the Urals and even to the east of the Urals, Siberia, in other words, looking for ore. And he does this because he has been, just before that, on a diplomatic mission to Western Europe. He has visited the King of England and the King of uh, France and the King of Spain. And from Spain, he has brought back gold and silver ore. So he's beginning to look for uh, ore because, to some extent, of course, the idea exists at the time that uh, for, an order, for a country to be strong and economically mighty, um, uh, economically mighty, one needs to have one's own uh, resources of boot of gold and silver, and therefore he begins to prospect um, uh, looking for gold and silver. He finds very little of it, by the way. He's looking, he finds a little bit of copper and stuff like that, but that's about all he can find at the time. So he's involved in that um, uh, too. Um, and um, all these different things combined, he work, he, he, uh, when he works for the time in the 1660s and 1670s in the Foreign Office, help Russia... Um, let's say again, modernize, innovate itself. Uh, itself. It also helps Russia to become much more of a part of Europe. Um, key, perhaps, finally there is, is that in, um, in the course of the 1660s, a postal service is set up 
for Russia that is a postal service with Western Europe, which is organized by Vinius's patron van Sweden. And later on, Vinius takes this over, and this particular postal service uh, allows for a much more regular kind of, let's say, mail communication between Moscow and, and Western Europe. And that, again, is conducive to Russian trade, is conducive to entrepreneurship and so on. So these things in trade and entrepreneurship are the areas in which, which Vinius very much contributes to Russia's modernization under Alexei, um, and he will continue after Alexei's death in 1676 to do so uh, in the time of uh, Alexei's uh, son's rule, uh, Fyodor III, who rules to, from 76 to 82, and then under the regency of Sofia from 1682 to 89, and even in the early years of Peter as well. There's different projects there in, uh, in which... Uh, in which Venus continues on the earlier pattern, um, trying to set up other things to modernize Russia, setting up a silk factory. Later on, he also seems to have at an estate near Moscow, which he has. He seems to have a brick factory as well, in which brick is being um, is being baked for actually the house he himself has built in a very uh, Western European style, actually, too. So there's all these kind of different ways of, uh, um, uh, let's say, technological as well as uh, trade innovation and, and information gathering, which, which aid the modernization of Russia starting from the 1660s onwards and certainly already beginning, therefore, under Alexei, mm -hmm. uh, rather than uh, just suddenly in 1689 when Peter the Great becomes Tsar on his own, if you like. Mm -hmm. I see. So even though he was um, what we might call uh, almost completely assimilated, he was not assimilated to the political class. No, the, the problem there, of course, is that um, Russia, as in, in most societies, certainly in early modern societies, Russia is a patron-client society in many ways. And in order to belong to the elite one um, one needs to have a certain genealogy about oneself. One needs to have belong to a family which goes back a long time. Certainly in the Russian case, there's even a whole kind of formal system uh, which exists through which members of older families are supposed to sit closer to the Tsar at dinner or are supposed to take the more senior commands than uh, families of somewhat uh, more recent vintage, uh, if you like. Mm -hmm. Venus, of course, belongs to no such family whatsoever. He is a complete outsider, upstart for that matter. And indeed, when he starts in the Tsar's bureaucracy, although his father seems to have at some point acquired some sort of uh, noble title, it doesn't seem as if he has inherited it. He has to, again, move up the ladder before he becomes comes to be seen as noble again, actually, before he, he arrives at the rank of Dvorianin, actually, which um, uh, is, uh, in his case, also, it seems, uh, a personal title rather than it can be inherited. So he's an outsider to that extent, and he has to, therefore, try to, uh, indeed, ingratiate himself with certain people who are powerful at the court in a variety of ways uh, in order to survive because on his own he can't really survive. He is though stubborn, a big, bit pig-headed about this, I'm afraid. Um, he seems to underestimate how important it is sometimes. So therefore he is exposed as he is in 1689 when he has a few champions, but those champions are um, 
not particular power, particularly powerful anymore. And one of his most important uh, champions actually um, is uh, Nikita Adyevsky, and he dies in 1689 just before the mayhem starts. And he's lost his his most senior patron actually at that point in time. And um, the person who seems to save his bacon in 1689 is his brother-in-law Ukrainsev, who is so important in the Foreign Office that although he has been far too much associated with the region Sofia, Peter decides that he cannot do without him, and he keeps him. And because Ukrainsev is the brother-in-law of Phineas, Phineas is um, uh, is is sent down a few notches on the career ladder, but is left alone otherwise, for that matter. But once Peter takes over in 1689, Phineas manages to get close to the Tsar again, and that's an interesting um, it's an interesting kind of development. It's not entirely sure how he does this, but it seems to have to do with um, giving Peter um, a, um, a very nice present or helping Peter to acquire a very nice present of a very nice Western-made map of Russia through his um, acquaintance Witzen. It also has to do with the fact that he has this... Um, relationship with his distant cousin in Amsterdam called Witsen, who was a mayor of Amsterdam at the time. And uh, Witsen is very closely associated with the Dutch shipbuilding trade with the Dutch East India Company and uh, is an ideal figure to help um, Peter and Russia along with building its actual navy. And Venus is a great kind of liaison person who can... Uh, maintain, set up this contact, this more intensive contact with the Netherlands, which Peter desires in order to start his own ocean-faring fleet, if you want an archangel. And the ship is built then in 1693, the uh, Santa Profetie, it's called in Dutch, um, which is the first Russian naval ship, seaworthy. And Vinius and Witt um, are the ones who have... Um, have seen this project through on behalf of Peter the Great. So Peter really gets close to Venus or Venus to Peter in um, in the course of the early 1690s. Uh, Peter at this point, by the way, in his correspondence um, is writing uh, half in Dutch at times, it seems. He addresses people in Dutch and so on. When Peter um, triumphs in 1696 over the Turks um, in the south, in near the Sea of Azov, actually he takes the fortress of Azov, um, Peter comes back to Moscow and an actual kind of Roman triumph with a Roman uh, <laughs> arc is like an arc de triomphe and an arc is, is, is set up and on top of the arc stands Venus who recites poems about the greatness of Peter the Great who with his troops walks underneath the ark uh, and with prisoners of war actually also in his wake um, and Venus there too is apparently for Peter uh, one of the great favorites um, However, by about 1700, really when Peter the Great has seen Western Europe himself in 1697 and 1698, um, Peter is becoming a little bit, I think, annoyed almost, it seems, with Venus or uh, becomes more distant from, distant from him. Not quite sure why, but it's partially because he is impatient with with Phineas, who he no longer sees so much as uh, as the great Dutchman at his court, of which he has many more, by the way, by that point, or uh, walking around in in Moscow and eventually St. Petersburg. But he sees him more as a kind of personification of the old-fashioned Muscovite bureaucracy of mm. old-fashioned ways and so on. And when Phineas then gets given a task which he doesn't acquit himself very well of, um, in terms 
terms of um, building cannon for Peter's army in the uh, war against Sweden, which breaks out in 1700, um, he uh, is willing to drop Venus when people begin to intrigue against Venus. And then it shows really very well <coughs> that Venus actually has forgotten how it works, that he has forgotten to find another sponsor besides the Tsar himself. He is dangerously exposed, and when people begin to gun for Venus, Venus is... Um, is sent down. There is rumor even that he will be flogged to death. Uh, that's probably exaggerated, but nonetheless, he is sent down and stripped of all his uh, tasks, his duties, given a tremendous fee because of corruption, etc. And um, and for a while, seems to disappear. He makes a sl- slight comeback then, but never is uh, his old self again, if you want, after that episode of 1703 or so, when Peter goes after him. And that shows how, um, how in, in many ways, Phineas wasn't in the end well connected enough uh, in order to survive in this kind of blood sport which was factional struggles factional struggle at the Russian court in those days at times mm-hmm. had his name in perhaps uh, uh, you know Dolgoruki or something like that he might have been resurfacing uh, more easily however nonetheless Peter has this lingering fondness for Venus it turns out because when Venus is serving as a quartermaster in one of the uh, parts of the Russian army fighting the Swedes, and uh, unfortunately, and he, by that point he's 65 years old, by the way, he loses um, actually contact with the army unit with which he is and falls behind Swedish lines. Um, he um, he flees to the Netherlands. Uh, even though he does that, Peter is willing two years later to actually um, um, accept him, forgive him for his uh, his uh, betrayal, for leaving his, for leaving Russia and uh, and uh, not trying to return in 1706, and um, allows him to go back to Russia and gives him back all his possessions, which had been confiscated because he had been supposedly guilty of treason by leaving in 1706. In fact, Russia, because this is an odd episode, and very few people have looked into it. Um, Venus, with the Russian army, falls behind the lines. He doesn't know how to get back behind Russian lines um, and decides instead to turn rather than eastward, westward. He's on Prussian territory fairly soon, and from Prussia he goes to the Netherlands and lives in the Netherlands in a self-imposed exile for two years. He lives with his cousin Ritson, who is very, very rich. So he probably lives somewhere on the estate. He does some sort of religious study in which he tries to find out uh, the similarities between Russian Orthodoxy and, and, and Protestantism, particularly, it seems, Calvinism. It's, it seems almost like he tries to create a sort or tries to con- uh, convince that Russia could become a sort of uh, Anglican type of uh, state with a kind of Anglican type of religion where obviously the sovereign is also the head of, uh, of the church, etc. And meanwhile, he, together with Witze, his, uh, his cousin, the mayor of Amsterdam, they send letters to Peter asking if Peter is willing to forgive um, Venus uh, for uh, leaving his country, leaving behind the army, not trying to go back across the lines, but rather moving west, etc. Venus says that he was sick for a while, so that's why he couldn't come back earlier to Russia. And surprisingly, in a year and a half later or so, after he is defected westward, Venus receives a letter of Peter in which Peter forgives 
forgives him and says, all right, I understand what happened there. Um, that's <laughs> too bad, but you're allowed to come back. Don't worry about it. I'll give you your, your things back as well. And he does so. Although, of course, um, I mean, in other circumstances, Peter was merciless with this type of behavior. His own son did a similar kind of trick 10 years later by going to Austria. And when his son came back from Austria, although Austria was in many ways a Russian ally, his son was, uh, was tortured um, uh, on accusations of, of treason and plotting against the Tsar. So that Venus is allowed to return in 1708 is quite uh, baffling and astounding in many ways, but shows, in, I think, that Peter the Great, in that sense, was a very loyal kind of patron and in the end uh, was so fond of the old man that he allowed him to come back to live out his last days in Russia, in, in, in Moscow, and then um, eventually uh, in St. Petersburg, although Venus fought that last particular move uh, against, uh, uh, from Moscow to St. Petersburg, he fought that uh, tooth and nail because he didn't really like St. Petersburg very much in those days. Mm -hmm. St. Petersburg in 1710s, of course, was a very uh, rather primitive kind kind of swampy type of area. Mm -hmm. Nobody liked to live very well, I think. Mm -hmm. So we know a lot about, well, I don't know about a lot, but we know, we know, we know comparatively a lot about Vinyus's uh, public life. What do we know about his private life? Not all that much. Um, we know a fair bit about his, um, his education in terms of that, you know, one finds through his book collection, for example, certain textbooks which were used in the Netherlands for, for children, which apparently his father bequeathed to him given also the year of printing, uh, the year in which they were printed. Um, we understand from what he can do later on that he knows things such as mathematics, that he knows a tremendous amount of languages because he translates from German newspapers as well, for example. Uh, in his book collection, too, there are Polish books. He certainly knows he has a smattering of Latin, um, not as much of Greek, it seems, but certainly of Latin. Um, and um, he, um, he probably knows he has a bit of a reading knowledge of French, at least, too. English, we're not, we're not quite sure about. But anyway, he knows all these languages um, for that, uh, uh, already. So, again, we know he's a well-educated man. We know he's a man, then, later on, who indeed collects books. We also know a man who collects paintings. He has all kind of precious drawings of Dutch 17th century masters, one of whom was a colleague of Rembrandt, for example, um, uh, legions of whom he has quite a few actually uh, very, you know, rare drawings in a kind of uh, album, which still is preserved in Russia, uh, in part, actually, in the, in the um, uh, I think in the Hermitage it is these days. Um, and um, he, he in, in many ways, also lives uh, the life of a country gentleman. So he has these kind of tastes. He likes to go hunting. He has this estate outside of Moscow with the ponds on which he can take Austrian and Prussian diplomats, rafting, for example. Um, of course, they go hunting as well. He lives in a brick house, both in Moscow as well as in the countryside. Uh, Moscow probably is stone has a brick house in the countryside and partially perhaps in stone as well, which is also new because most Russians until that time lived in wooden houses, for example. These are the first houses uh, which are built in stone and so on. And indeed, his brother-in-law's Ukrainsev's house still survives in Moscow today, for example. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, one of the oldest houses of Moscow outside the Kremlin. Um, we also know that he's got he got married twice. Um, and he has several children. The exact number, though, is unclear. There seems to be a daughter and two sons, at least. Um, what seems to be obvious, though, from the circumstances surrounding his death, 
uh, is that all his children uh, precede him to his grave. His first wife dies probably somewhere in the 1680s. His second wife dies in a fire, actually, in, um, in, in 1715 or 1716, a house fire. That was uh, not unusual in Russia, although because Venus had actually a stone house, it was a little bit unusual, perhaps, that this happened. So that's fairly tragic, and he had one son who lived into adulthood and who seemed to have been groomed by his father to become his kind of, you know, successor, if you like, who's indeed worked with him for a while in the post office in the 1690s, uh, apparently in preparation to take it over the post office, which Phineas still ran in those days uh, for the mail with Western Europe. But unfortunately, that son was... Um, was um, I, a bit of a uh, bon vivant, if you like. He drank a lot. He wasn't very good at anything. He was sent to different places, including study in, in, in to Prussia, to Germany, to study where he really didn't do very well. And ultimately, um, he, um, he, he died young as well, probably drinking himself to death or something like that. So that was a bit of a tragic kind of thing. So in terms of Venus's legacy, uh, his, his family, in many ways, the direct line becomes extinct upon on his death, there are some kind of distant relatives he still have, has at the time when he dies in 1716 who quarrel uh, in order to get his possessions, his earthly possessions, but ultimately um, they, uh, they, a lot of it actually ends up um, in, um, in the Academy of Sciences um, and its predecessor, um, the library which existed before that, actually the Kunstkameras Library um, in, in St. Petersburg for that matter. So he ha doesn't have the happiest type of, um, let's say, family life, if you want, for that matter. Again, he has tastes which are very much those of the country gentlemen around 1700 in Western Europe in many ways, it seems. Um, he is very well educated, he's very erudite, he likes to read books, um, he does he double even in translating some uh, books into Russian out of the out of Dutch, for example, fables in the style of La Fontaine and Aesop, for example, too. Um, and um, ultimately also, though, one doesn't realize that this is, he is a, yeah, a man of his age in many ways. He is not, let's say, the nicest person, um, because as I point out in the book, somewhere or other we have um, uh, what has survived is an instruction to a bailiff who runs one of his estates on which um, Russian peasants are working for him, and Russian peasants in those days were usually serfs. This is the same in the case of Venus, serfs, unfree laborers, in other words, and he draws up an instruction on how to work them as much as possible in order to get as much as possible uh, production out of his estate and that amounts to these peasants hardly getting any time off to work for themselves. Uh, they have one day, weekday, they, they are, they, um, they, they're off on Sundays, but then they have to go to church for example, and um, he basically tells his bailiff to squeeze them uh, like lemons in order to get uh, the maximum kind of profit for himself out of their particular activities. So he, uh, he exploits the work of others to the hilt. He has earlier too, as a as, as postmaster, for example, he orders all kind of people to be flogged if they do not, if they lose packages, for example, in the mail, etc., etc. Um, he is, in other words, he's certainly a cruel man, but then again, he's not exceptional in that. This is a cruel age, uh, uh, let's say, um, 
Uh, of course, torture was routinely practiced in the judicial process, um, certainly in Russia too. And in that sense, exploitation of 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 of, of serfs was common. In that sense, he's sense he's not unique. But he, although in many ways he seems sometimes startlingly modern, he doesn't have the kind of let's say sensitivity we have these days regarding such matters. Uh, in other words, he's a, you know from our perspective, he's basically a nasty piece of work. But mm-hmm. um, and of course. That's only to be expected because otherwise it would have been hard to uh, expect someone like him to survive and thrive in the Russian system or in any other political system and economic system in the 17th century, I think. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it's even, <laughs> even the same today. <laughs> you can't be the nicest person if you want to make a political career or if you want to be a captain of industry, I think, in many ways. Well, right, that's right. So uh, we've already said that uh, Vinyus is not known among Western Audiences. I don't think Mus- much about Muscovy is. Uh, is he known at all in Russia? Does his name appear in textbooks? Does anybody pay any attention to him? Or is well, uh, in in the Russian historiography, there's a remar- remarkable amount of stuff written about him. Um, I came up with four books written about him at least uh, at various times. Um, there was before the revolution someone called Kozlovsky who read, uh, wrote something about him. Um, and in recent times there's someone called Igor Yurkin who has written several books about him. They're a bit hard to fathom and read sometimes, but certainly Yurkin has researched uh, a lot about him, for example, as well. And then there are articles in which he appears as well in, 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 uh, in let's say, rather well-known Russian historians' works, like Bogoslovsky, for example, as well. And... Um, um, in the West, um, particularly the German historian is based in Sweden, Ingrid Meyer has done quite a bit with him. She has republished some of these um, these newspaper summaries of the 1660s he made, for example, together with Dan Wall, uh, former of the University of Washington, of course, still the University of Washington. She has written something about that, too. So in that sense, there is um, there's certainly in other languages something written about him. Uh, certainly in Russian there is, and also in Dutch, as I've said, there is a, there's a book written uh, uh, about his uh, relationship with Witt, actually, or even though that book is perhaps uh, yeah, has its problems, I think, but uh, nonetheless. Um, so there is, certainly in the Russian case, many people have written about him, many people are interested in him, you'll find him also in, 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 in other languages. What is remarkable is that there's so little written about him in English, mm-hmm. but again I, I have found that in general um, as I say in the introduction to the book, um, the kind of um, uh, Dutch influence on Russian history, which is really stretches the 17th century but ends fairly quickly after 1700, it has been underestimated. People have not really been writing uh, very much about it. Probably partially because of because of the language barrier, because of course you need to know Russian as well as Dutch, mm-hmm. and then you need to re- write about it in English. Not too many people probably do that too yeah. quick. Um, because the languages alone take a while to learn, obviously. Um, so there is a little bit of that gap. So what I hope is, is that I, you know, I, I want to show something here about the fact that Russia was connected before Peter the Great, as it was more modernizing before Peter the Great, through people such as Vinius, uh, that it was not as uh, isolated a kind of xenophobic backwater as people <laughs> sometimes uh, make it out to be. Um, and, um, you know, that, that in other words, um, um, and the, the, also the influence and the, the, the interconnectedness of the early modern world is sometimes greater than we, we, we allow for in many ways. And, and that, indeed, in that sense, uh, the Dutch all 
was an interesting one to look at because there sometimes seemed to be the glue which keeps the, the early modern trading system at least together in some ways. That is the early modern European world, as Fernand Brodel probably would call it. Um, but I do think that it shows something in general, I think, about um, how capitalism works in some ways, I think, and uh, how it shifts. And one of the interesting things for, I think, the students of capitalism in general is, is that um, too few realize how important that Dutch role has actually been, <laughs> both in, in terms of technological innovation as well as in terms of, I mean, uh, Jan de Vries has said something about, you know, consumer behavior, for example, um, and in terms of, uh, of, you know, establishing certain ways of doing things, which we still do today. Uh, people always think it begins in England, it seems, and, and then it goes to the United States, etc. But it starts actually a little bit earlier. And these are, this is one of the roots, I think, of capitalism, which you can see by way of the figure of Vinu. So, Yes, he would show up, I think, sometimes in textbooks about Russia, but I think he should perhaps sometimes can show up as a case study about early modern capitalism, so books about early modern Europe or something like that. He would be an interesting character to look at, actually. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, that's boasting. I don't know if you want to read the book. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. he, he could be a bit of an example of that. For yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, thank you very much for bringing uh, him to our attention. Let me ask you, uh, what is our traditional and final question on uh, the New Books Network, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? What's your next project? Well, um, as as of, I guess, this week or so, <laughs> the next book is out already, which is a textbook, <laughs> a textbook on the history of Russia since 1613, actually, mm-hmm. which has been in the, work, uh, in the works for ages. So first it was with two others, and they dropped out, so mm-hmm. coming out of Roman and Littlefield, um, and um, that is a textbook, so it, it's it's really a little bit different from uh, from of course the the kind of spade work which a more scholarly monograph demands. The idea is, I, and I hope to find a time for it, is uh, to write something on um, Dutch mercenaries and possibly the Dutch arms trade in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And I've written an article about that, which is supposed to come out in Australia, uh, but there's a lot, there are a lot of Dutch mercenaries around. And again, I just talked about capitalism. There is an unfortunate but evident clear connection between thriving capitalism and the arms trade, (laughs) as well as mercenaries, etc. And I think uh, there's a fair bit of information there I've been able to find about Dutch fighting as mercenaries in China, Dutch fighting as mercenaries in Russia, Dutch fighting as mercenaries in a variety of other places. Um, Perhaps I can do something with that, I've been thinking. That might be the next kind of more scholarly project. There's also a textbook on the history of Western Europe I'm working on with uh, with a colleague of mine, Adolf Gunzel, in uh, he's in Indiana at Franklin College, actually. But um, I'm not sure how far we are with that. And again, that's not really a strictly scholarly project. It's more of a kind of comparative Western European type of uh, textbook. And uh, in Amsterdam, they're still working on um, with a publisher on um, a kind of retranslation of the the original Strauss text or part of the original yeah. Strauss text, actually. But I don't know when that's coming out. Uh, and we still need to do some work. So those are the various things. They're all kind of other things. I remember you asked me this question last time as well. And you said, yeah, it's endless basically. And it's true because I have thought, uh, going all the way back to my, my, my very first PhD project on Kalinin or Tver province in Russia, 
it might be interesting to write a history of Tver province or the Tver region since the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Well, you're very busy. Because there's so there's many, many people, there's so many people coming out of Tver from Bakunin yeah. to whoever, uh, Zdanov. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in any event, but you know, um, who knows? I mean, as you know from your own experience, and as probably quite a few of the listeners know, it's very hard to juggle everything because yeah. one has to teach as well, one has to do administrative stuff, one has to have a, a family yeah. life. Yeah, as not well. to mention living life. Yeah, family <laughs> yeah. life as well. So. Well, good luck so with all those it. projects. Yeah. 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 So um, I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast today. We've been talking with Keith Boderblum about his book, Modernizer of Russia, Andre Vinyus. 1641 to 1716. It's a fascinating book. And again, thank you all for listening, but I especially want to thank Keys for being on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me again. Uh, it has been a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye.